So welcome back to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard. We are looking at the microaggressors of Paul and the letter of Paul to the Romans. <clears throat> We've done eight. We're looking at number nine. Uh, this is a continuation of last podcast where we looked at Romans 5.1. We're looking at Romans 5.2, 3, 4, and 5, and then we'll wrap it up. And we're just seeing something different than typically there. We're seeing something more relational, something more more vibrant, something that actually has more meaning to a lost and lonely generation. I mean, we are in an epidemic of loneliness here in the United States and in Western Europe, probably all over the world. And the gospel is really good news, but for some reason we've, we haven't dared talk about the, this relationship very much. I mean, we can check a box, but I mean, to really experience this. But Paul does. This whole section from, from Romans 5 all the way to the end of Romans 8 is all about this experiential love of God and how it makes a difference. And so we're interpreting it within that context. It's legit. But the, the big crescendo is Romans 8, where Paul will say, well, who can separate us from this love of Christ, right? Not just technically, but experientially. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, does that ring true? That, right? This is Romans 1 through 4 reprised. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. 838, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation, and that would include the, the, the nasty beast voice in my head, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And by the way, it's, we should experience the love of God more and more because of that, right? But that, that takes some leaning into it, particularly in our society. All right, let's get to Romans 5. Let me read uh, 1 through 5 again. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. All right, again, this is part two, looking at the passage. If you missed the first podcast, go back and check it out. This is a very familiar, oft-quoted passage. I did some checking, by the way, and this is what Bible nerds like me do, how ch children's sermons handle these verses, Romans 5, 1 through 5. It's very interesting. Almost exclusively, they skip verses 1 to 4 and go straight to 5. I think they're right on. I think that's the point that Paul is is building. And if we do five first and then look back at the first four, I think we get it more, right? We adults, man, we just, we, we walk through the, the minefield. We skip, we, we diminish verse five because it just sounds too emotionalistic. And, and we trudge through one and four because we think that's heroic. Well, why? I'm guessing in our culture that's highly rationalistic, enlightenment uh, infected, we feel like we need to be rational to be relevant, not emotional, and, we, and, and not shirk away from our, the reality of our fallen world and emotionalism we're just not too sure about. We want to be reasonable beyond all things. And so we approach this passage like, like William F. Buckley, if you remember him, or, or pick a Harvard Law professor who's trying to make his bones, right, or her bones. And we miss the relationship, the romance, the relational joy, and we end up being alone and isolated. 
and disconnected. But not today. We're going to deal with 5.1. In, in the, uh, we dealt with 5.1 in the last podcast, and we're going to pick up in verse 2. All right, some interpretation notes. Important, grace. Grace is at its core relational, charis, right? It's, it's not a power or a stuff like commodity, pork bellies. It's, it's a euphemism for the relational reality that we are now have uh, presently with the personal God. There is no grace apart from him, his smiling, loving presence. Think of the grace as the hug of God or looking up into his eyes right now and, and, and seeing that look in his eyes, that relational joy that causes your heart to leap. It's that powerful, and it'll change you. It'll rewire your brain. But never is grace apart from this relationship, present relationships. God doesn't send it to us by UPS from a distance. Uh, Boy, we major on this, and the dance, let me promote it again, www.the-dance.org. If you want to experience this anew, we've all experienced it once, right? But if you, if you want to experience again, we've ex, we, we express this grace as a dance with God. All right, go, go, go with it. All right, picking up Paul's thoughts about Jesus, the rendering through whom we have gained access by faith into this embrace, this grace in which we now stand, can, we can be a lot clearer if we say something like he has brought us into this experience of God's loving embrace. Right? That's legit. Or, he has caused us to experience God's love. Or, he has caused us to know how good God is towards us. Or, he has caused us to see how much God adores us so freely. And the final clause in which we now live can be rendered, and this is what we now experience. This is what God is now doing for us. Or, this is what we now enjoy. So, here's my shot at 5-2. It is through Jesus' efforts alone, which we believe, that's faith, right, we, that, we, that we believe, that we have plan, that have planted us firmly in the heart of God. This is the relationship which we now enjoy. There it is. Short and sweet. It's interpretive, but I think it captures the gist of what Paul is trying to communicate to the lonely people who are going to be isolated and feel like they're not enough in, in Romans. All right, uh, second half of verse 2. Kaucheomai which is translated here, by the way, a surprising choice is rejoice. Almost always in the Greek refers to boasting, and that's good or bad boasting. So we went with something a little more reasonable, actually, and uh, honestly, without saying being judgmental, a little more appropriate. So how about we can't stop talking about? Um, We can't, yeah, I like that. No, we can't stop talking about. So hope, uh, hope is a very narrow Greek word. It's not wishful thinking. You've probably heard this before. You know, like I hope the pandemic ends soon, or I hope that person stops posting their political views on Facebook. Please, if you listen to me, please stop. <laughs> it's a statement of surprising confidence. I'm convinced. I can't prove it 100%, but, you know, I'm going to change my life, and I'm going to put my investments there. I'm so convinced I'm shifting my life accordingly. That's the idea, hope. Uh, the glory of God. Interesting. Uh, we want to get this out of the heavenly realm because it's a present uh, existential experience for us. In honor, shame cultures like Paul's Rome and Jesus' Israel, glory is what you want. It's the opposite of shame. And shame's not good. Or losing face or rejection, uh, being embarrassed. All right? All of those things. The glory of God 
is how you would describe his honor. It's the pinnacle of honor. It's the top of the food chain. It's his rightful position innately. It's his name. It's his reputation uh, of honor socially, not just in Rome or Israel, but in the heavenlies, right? God is the highest of all honored deity, and he, he knows no shame. Though, arguably, Jesus experienced our shame, right? He didn't earn it, but he, he, he took on our shame to accomplish what needed to be done on the cross, but he never forfeited any of his glory. So Paul is meditating on something that Jesus purchased for him and for us that I could really use right now. There will come a time, that's the hope, when all shame, all of my experience of shame and rejection, whether I've earned it, brought it upon myself, given things away, or has been put on me, forced on me, all shame and rejection and humiliation will end. And then there will only be me invested in the worth, value, name, and honor of God lavished over me, and this is what I'll experience. That's beyond, I, I can't even think of words to, to express it. It's not mine innately, it's God's. Jesus, but Jesus purchased that experience for me, and I can taste it little bits and bits, pieces by the Holy Spirit. Now, having said all that, here's my shot at verse 2 in full. It is through Jesus' efforts alone, which we believe, that's faith again, right? We believe it, that have planted us firmly in the heart of God, this relationship which we now enjoy, and we just can't keep quiet about our promised future, which we actually believe in, this faith again, where we will somehow be immersed in the social honor of God and the absence of any and all shame forever. Now, isn't that encouraging? I'm going to suggest that that's the essence of what Paul is talking about. All right, verse 3. Here's how it reads in the NIV. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Uh, rejoice is kaucheomai again. You know, we can't stop talking about it. We're going to go with that. Uh, so verse 3, even more, uh, we can't stop talking about our relationship with God because we're experiencing it even in the midst of our troubles. Troubles is the Greek word thalipsis which can be external or inward trouble that, that inflicts distress, oppression, affliction, tribulation, societal shame, all of those things, right? So I'm suggesting that the context here for Paul is the experience of the love of God today, right now, in whatever context I find myself in. That's the point. It's not me persevering. It's me actually experiencing the love of God in the midst of a fallen world where everything's groaning, right? Every, everything else is groaning. I'm groaning, but I'm also experiencing the love of God, and that makes me unique, right? And the context would be sufferings of any kind, unfair treatment, racism, abuse, uh, loneliness, rejection, betrayal, addiction. See, and I, I know I'm not the only one whose head, or better, that beast voice in my head takes a look at my situation and says, oh, Bill, you've done something wrong. Otherwise, why would God do this, right? It sounds like Job or the psalmist, why have you forsaken me? What did I do? And, and I, I'm just looking around going, God's not protecting me, so he must not like me anymore. He's letting his displeasure be known. And so the beast voice tells me in the middle of the, of, of the struggles of the sufferings, I can't be alone here. Matter of fact, studies have shown two-thirds of Christians believe this uh, in honesty. So the beast voice tells me that my present sufferings, the ellipsis, are being caused by an angry or vengeful God. And, and this can and often does lead to a loss of confidence that God had my, has my back or favors me anymore or loves me or likes me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's in contrast to Paul's confident hope we just read about of experiencing God's glory. 
right? The absence of shame, an, an implicit absence of any suffering. So that's why Paul can't stop talking about this new thing. Everybody's going through suffering. That's not a new thing. But the difference is Paul is saying that now he is empowered by the Spirit, and I'm finally getting it. I somehow actually know beyond knowing, hope that the troubles in the end result in a more constant experience and assurance, that's a good place to put this, of God's faithfulness towards me. And, and hupomone is, is, is perseverance, ability to bear up in the face of ongoing difficulty, a steadfastness or patience, right? So before Jesus, before the Spirit in our inner being, we wondered or were afraid that our circumstances reflected God's lack of devotion for us that we deserve. And we often doubted his goodness, that he liked us. But less and less now because we're learning that that's not true. And we learn it in somehow in the middle of the mess, in the middle of the suffering. And, and it's there that I'm beginning to feel his presence is so unlikely and his adoration of me so unlikely. Look, I still have questions. Why not just take me out of the sufferings? But there's something there. And I have to tell you, though, I can't stop talking about feeling loved in the middle of suffering, feeling honored, feeling adored. And look, when I'm feeling that way... The suffering seems less because he is with me. I'm not alone. I am enough in Christ and I'm connected in Christ. So here's uh, 5.3. But even more, we can't keep quiet about how this new relationship affects us right now. Even when life throws us into desperate struggles. You know, when bad things happen to us, unfair things, things out of our control that cause us to experience shame. We used to be afraid that God had changed his mind about us. Maybe he was disappointed in us or disgusted or just became tired of us and just turned his back, abandoning us, exiling us, shaming us. But no, not anymore. Life's troubles are less and less causing me to lose my cool and doubt God as much. I'm actually becoming patient. Verse 4, which leads us, produces, which leads us to an even greater awareness of God's approval. Dokimi can mean character, but it's also really approval. Uh, it could be either, but in my context, I, li- I like approval. I think it, it describes what Paul is talking about perfectly, and it's legit. It causes me to be even more assured, right, that's the, the hope, that God's favor will always be there for me. I don't deserve it. And this is what throws me off so often. Jesus earned it, deserves it, and through a miracle of substitutional atonement, God approves of me as much as the Father approves of the Son and the Spirit and vice versa. For some reason, it is in the middle of persecution, failure, rejection, shame, isolation, attacks, abuse, belittling, racism, unfairness, loss, that I can actually shockingly feel it, this approval of God. And it it seems contrary, right? You would think that I'd feel approval when the good times happen, but no, it's just the opposite. It's not the way I would run the universe or design my brain, but I'm beginning to feel in the middle of uh, bad times that I'm actually loved. Uh, and and that's, that's a miracle. All right, uh, Romans 5.5, 5, and then we'll pull it all together. And hope does not disappoint us, the NIV says, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. Well, hope in What? Well, in the context, it's in this unwavering love and approval that God feels towards me. That's not reflected by my circumstances, right? When I look at at my circumstances, and, and it's so different from every other relationship I've ever known, but I'm beginning to have this growing confidence that I can't mess this relationship with God up. 
So check this out. This is an example of the flow of the interpretation affecting translations of certain words. Karaschuno, which is disappoint, can mean dishonor, to disgrace, or to shame, or to disappoint. And those are, those are very different meanings. Dishonor and disgrace, those are similar. Shame, maybe similar to that. Disappoint? That's a, that's a different direction. Um, and, and, and even so, most translators go with disappoint. And it does fit their direction. Right? If, if I don't do this, God's disappointed. But honestly, no. No. <laughs> and the word, by the way, karashuno, is most often refers to being disgraced or shamed. By far, uh, the more common use of the word. And it fits so perfectly here. Uh, so I'm going to use it. So now I am less and less afraid that God will eventually give up on me. Toss me away. Shame me. Rule me out of the game. Send me to the locker room. Bench me. Look, I get it. This was what can happen to 100% of relationships here on planet Earth, the groaning ones. Those depend upon my effort, my success, my cleverness, my beauty, uh, me not forgetting Valentine's Day. You know the, the many things that can happen. And then I'm left ashamed, reminded I wasn't worthy, that I blew it. But I'm beginning to see that that can't happen with this relationship with God. God adores me as I am. He's already whispering, you're my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. No strings. All because of what Jesus has done. And the place to make that the clearest is in the middle of the times that I would most naturally, humanly speaking, with a beast voice, feel like he doesn't love me anymore. So if I'm in that situation, I'm actually feeling like he loves me. That rewires my brain. How do I know this? How can I experience this? So it's not just a rational Spockian exercise. Paul says, because God has not just dripped out, you know, got a dripper and, and dripped it on my heart. The Greek implies that his love is lavishly poured into my being. Think a tsunami and think continuous through the spirit who is already there, right? Ephesians 3. So much so that even my beat up midbrain with all of its boundaries has to hear it and feel it in spite of the machinations of the beast. We all know when we feel loved. We can all remember a time when we really, really felt loved. Well, at least I hope so. Uh, And that's what we're talking about here. God actually, in the middle of those times, makes me feel loved. It's a miracle. And that's why I can't stop talking about it. So yeah, you see the things I've been going through. But you know what? Something crazy. I actually feel God's love for me. So verse 5. And then we'll bring it all together. This growing assurance of God's faithful devotion towards us doesn't shame us or cause us shame because we have experienced a miracle. God lavishly poured out his love for us into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who he already gave to us and will never, ever take away. All right, I want to bring this home and personalize it. Uh, 5.1 through 5.5. So, since we have been swept up into this furious love affair with God, justified to be made relationally right with all the trimmings, strictly because of what Jesus did on my behalf, all possible hostilities from God's point of view have ceased to possibly exist between me and God. We're at peace. He was enraged at Jesus in my place, and it's finished. No matter what I do, God's love for me is never changed. He's never angry or disgusted or judgmental towards me. I never have to worry that he would ever change his mind. And I have been ushered into his presence and can see and feel and taste his love for me. It's in his face. I can see it. His touch, his hug, right? his grace. And I can't be moved from this life-giving, shining face. 
no matter what life throws at me. And I'm feeling something new. It's hope, but it's more than that. I get overwhelmed thinking more and more how I will experience it full time and forever. It's joy. My face becomes flushed. My eyes light up. This is a new hope that I will experience God's glory forever and ever. The absence of shame. Never again wondering if I'm not enough or not connected to God. I also find that I deal with sufferings differently. So it used to be when bad things happen, I used to wonder if God was angry at me or disciplining me or tired of me. I used to feel guilt and shame like a loser, the odd man out on the bench. But now, the more I feel hope, I deal with sufferings differently. And even more, I can't keep quiet about how this new relationship affects me right now, even when life throws me into desperate troubles. You know, when bad things happen to me, unfair things, things out of my control that cause me to trigger, to experience shame, uh, to self-medicate, to do self-harm, I used to fear that God had changed his mind about me. Maybe he was disappointed in me or disgusted or just became tired and turned his back, abandoning me, exiling me. Not anymore. Life's troubles don't cause me as much to lose my cool and doubt God as much. I'm more patient. And that patience seems to help me be aware of God's permanent approval, his character, of me as I am, not as I should be, which leads me to even more hope and an even growing confidence that I will never, ever lose my special place in God's heart. And when the dust clears, I see God's loving eyes still and feel his love for me as I am. And this helps me process suffering differently, positively, productively. I learn and I feel more and more approved by God because it is not about my failure measured by God, which would always in the end lead back to hope, that deep desire and looking forward to eternity in God's unwavering embrace. This growing assurance of God's faithful devotion towards me doesn't shame me or cause me shame because I'm experiencing right now a miracle. God lavishly pouring out his love for me into my heart by the Holy Spirit, who he already gave me and will never, ever take away. Amen. Well, that's different. Haven't heard that before. (laughs) Well, think about it. Uh, It's probably a microaggressor. You're probably thinking, I don't know. That's not what I heard before. I I get that. And yet it's totally consistent with with Paul and the Greek, and uh, it it really does make his argument. If you want to experience this, check out www.the-dance.org. It's two hours and the seven teaching, experiential teaching stations of being reminded of, of God's love for you. That can't hurt, right? As you are right now, you haven't messed it up. Look, great experience, okay? We'll see you in the next podcast. Take heart, child of God. This, this is my skyship dreamer. My cargo is stories, and our destination, dreams. With Abide Sleep Stories for Kids, you can help your children fall asleep fast and learn about God. To find these kids' bedtime stories, go to lifeaudio.com or search your favorite podcast app for Abide Stories for Kids. You can also download the Abide app for more biblical meditations at abide.com.